0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a Radical Pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with my co-host, Tina Pippin. We feel so lucky today to welcome Jesse Stommel and Sean Michael Moritz to the podcast. Sean is the Director of Digital Pedagogy Lab or DPL at the University of Colorado at Denver. Jesse is the co-founder of DPL and the Executive Director of Hybrid Pedagogy. Both Jesse and Sean write, research, and teach very widely on themes of new media technologies, critical pedagogy, and social justice. Most pertinent for today, Jesse and Sean are co-authors of a recent book, An Urgency of Teachers, The Work of Critical Digital Pedagogy. And here I just need to give an earnest and self-indulgent plug and say how extraordinarily helpful this text has been to me for thinking through not just concrete pedagogical strategy, but also broader questions of critical technological literacy and the politics of teaching as I prepare for my remote hybrid classes this fall, and also as I reflect more generally on teaching practices in any modality. Um, the same could be said for Sean and Jesse's recent co-edited volume, Critical Digital Pedagogy, which literally came out just a couple of weeks ago. I highly recommend both. We're going to hear all about it and the ideas inside these books from Jesse and Sean today. So without further ado, welcome to both of you.
1: Yes, so Hi, it's super you good join us. Okay, well, I'm gonna go ahead and ask the first question. Um, I was at Digital Pedagogy Lab 2020, as well as Lucia. Um, and I want you to tell us how it went, how you think it went, what you learned, what new insights you gained since you are um, student-centered and you had a whole lot of students across multiple time zones. Um, this The conference had to go virtual at the last minute for the first time. so. What were the major lessons that you learned, and how did they help you define, redefine hybrid pedagogy?
2: Um, I'll go ahead and start. This is Jesse. Um, I, Sean, and I have been working on this project, Digital Pedagogy Lab, since twenty fifteen. Uh, we actually came up with the idea in a parking lot in California in twenty twelve, um, and then the first event happened in twenty fifteen, and. The event has changed so much over the years. We have been in um, quite a few different countries on several continents, and we've also had uh, an annual home institution, quote-unquote home institution in the United States. And this year's was unusual. Uh, Unusual because it, like so much of our work, pivoted online. Sean made the decision really early on to just declare that it would be online before a lot of institutions and a lot of events were making those decisions. And part of the reason he did that is because he wanted to be really careful that he could actually architecture an experience for folks online that was true to the spirit of Digital Pedagogy Lab. And Digital Pedagogy Lab is all about building community. It's all about creating relationships And it's all about conversations and dialogue as a way forward, not a series of lectures, not a series of best practices, and to really create those robust conversations and dialogues, he needed time to orchestrate the space. This was actually the first year that I took, I mean, I say I took a little bit of a backseat, he and I were still working really closely together throughout the planning of the event, but as far as actually orchestrating the space and architecturing the space, that was all Sean. And so I would say the thing that I learned is that Sean is absolutely amazing at doing this work. I've known this before, but it is nice to be reminded of, of it again, that It's extraordinarily difficult to architecture for online community. And Sean takes a really special approach to that work. And I was amazed because I got to step in and be involved in the event at so many different levels. But I felt like there was a there there. And I felt like I was with people. And that is so rare when we talk about doing this kind of work
3: online. That's very kind. Um, it was, it was a huge challenge. Um, it was really intimidating to, to think about putting this event online. The, when Jesse and I first talked about this event ages ago when we first sort of put it together, we made a very clear determination that this would never be an online event. And in fact, that we would never even try to make it a hybrid event where there were some people online and some people on ground because what we wanted to do was create a really intense feeling of community. We wanted it to feel like a kind of summer camp where you go away and it's immersive and you have this really wonderful cohort-driven experience um, for a week and and it's really intense. Like usually when you're on the on-ground thing, it's really, really intense. So trying to think about putting it online was actually really contradictory to everything we had ever planned for this event Mm -hmm. um, altogether. But the core of what Digital Pedagogy Lab is, is the community and and, and the sense of the community that is built when you're there. Um, so I'm, when I say community, I don't mean like the community that always shows up, you know, sort of the like clickish kind of situation, but actually, because every time there's new people and every time the community grows and every time the community is different depending on who shows up. Um, so this year, trying to even conceive of how to build a community across people people tuning in from over 20 time zones over 500 people coming to this event um, from their various desks and bedrooms and living rooms and dining room tables and um, and trying to figure out a way to make people feel like they were part of something was really a challenge the first thing that the first thing that I knew would have to happen was it had to be asynchronous you simply cannot ask people from across 20 time zones to show up at a certain time you just can't so if there were going to be synchronous components and there were for almost every course throughout the, throughout the week, um, if there were synchronous components, they couldn't be part of the learning. They had to be something that was additional, something extra in case you, in case you could show up. Um, and even the keynotes, for example, we knew that not everyone was gonna be able to show up for the keynotes. So Jesse actually came up with this really brilliant idea of flipping the keynote. So that what we would do is we would turn the keynote on its head and, and, and essentially the, the keynote would be written out and posted as a blog post. And then the only thing that would go online was the Q&A, so which is, also, which is one of those valuable parts of a keynote anyway, it's the chance to actually talk to the person who was there speaking. So we flipped that and then, and then the online piece of it was, um, was the Q&A and that was recorded. And we did it at, at a time when we thought the most people could come um, across all those time zones. Um, we really did the best we could to be as inclusive as possible throughout the whole week. Um, So it was, you know, it was a fascinating experience. And I think that one of the things that we learned for sure is that we have to do it again. Um, And there's no way that we can't not have an online component for Digital Pedagogy Lab. Even if we're on ground again next year, um, we have to have a space um, that people can come to who don't want to come to this country, who can't come to this country, who can't afford to travel, and, and people who are across all those 20 time zones who want to attend nonetheless. So we had to f- figure out a way to create an experience, a kind of parallel experience for people who were online and people who are on ground and places where they might intersect. So that's, I think, one of the things we, we really come away with. Um, and also just that I think it can work. <laughs> I, was, I was honestly amazed that it worked. Um, I really didn't think that I didn't think that it wouldn't. I just thought I didn't know if it would. I we'd never did anything. Like, I'd never designed anything like this before, um, and so um, I was I was pleased that that this managed to actually seem
4: to work. One of the things that. Was really significant to me as a participant in DPL this year was my own disbelief, which I, I think that both of you sort of touched on that if I want community i 'm not doing this online um, i 've heard so many teachers who are facing digital and hybrid modes um, in the in the fall say, But how will I develop rapport with my classes? how will i um, build how will I build community and Y'all not only grappled with that, but also led hundreds and hundreds of people through a process of learning by doing what um, what community could look like, and that it was possible, and like all of the stages of like alienation at the first, like what is this message board? To oh, I really am connecting with someone in the Q and A, and the chat function on Zoom can work. So I guess would y'all elaborate on some of the particular things that you found surprising about how community developed in that space? Um,
2: I think that that one of the things that's most important for me when I go into being a teacher in a space like that is that I ask myself to suspend disbelief because I think every time it happens, I don't think there's any way it will happen or could happen, especially when you're talking about developing community across a single week. That's a really compressed space of time to have 500 people working together online from 20 time zones with their very complicated lives surrounding them. So to imagine that you can build community in that space, I think one of the things is as the teacher, I have to suspend disbelief because if I There's a way in which is if the folks architecturing the experience or the folks leading the conversation, if we do too much, if we try too hard to control the community or to make it happen, it actually won't happen. So to some degree, what you have to do is make sure that you build into the space breathing room. Even in a week, space where not a lot is happening. When you're having a conversation, don't always have 10 questions that you want to talk about during that conversation. Have moments where you talk about your dog. And those moments where you talk about your dog are actually pedagogical, because what they are is they're, they're, a, they're a way of saying, there is space here that we can work with. And I think that when people are sitting in that kind of room, they need that. And that's actually where if you have 10 topics, the kind of hard questions that get asked when you have a moment of pause or a moment where an eyebrow raised. I know you were actually really good at that, Lucia. Like, I really appreciated moments where I could look at your face and see your eyebrow raising and see you sort of puzzling over something. And we don't puzzle, we don't have that space to puzzle over if we are constantly one task, then another task, then another task. We actually have to know that there's room for us to figure things out on the fly with one another.
3: I think that's right. And I think that um, what we preparing, preparing the faculty for DPL um, this year was actually very interesting because um, some of them were, were really like, okay, cool. I'll be fine. Here's the platform I'm going to be using. This is, this is great. And others were like, can you please walk me through this? And I had calls with some of them three or four times during the month of July, preparing them for, for, and and I expected that, and that, and that was perfectly okay. But one of the things that I, um, and I guess I kind of want to, I want to think a little bit too, just generally about the kind of work that Jesse and I do um, with faculty and that we have done. There's so many times that faculty will come to us and we have all our crazy, weird, critical pedagogy ideas and they'll come and they'll say, well, that won't work for me. Um, that doesn't work for my topic. That doesn't work for my subject. That doesn't work at my school. That doesn't work at my, in my position, whatever it may be, there's, there's reasons why it won't work. When I looked at this, trying to put this thing online, the first thing I thought is this is not gonna work. There's no way this will work. But, but as soon as we say it doesn't work, as soon as we say that won't work, that's when critical pedagogy kicks in and says, okay, but you have to imagine that it will because that's how change happens. And that's how we get anywhere is by saying, all right, this looks like, a, this looks like an obstacle. Actually, though I have the imagination and the agency to overcome this obstacle and or to change its form and and get on with get on with things and and make learning happen where it needs to happen um, and i think one of the things that we discovered this that um over the course of the week and i discovered this too because faculty approached this challenge in very different ways across the board some of them were were some of them decided you know what i'm going to have phone calls with people some of them were like we're going to definitely meet once a day and 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 everyone kind of dealt with it their own way So I was even surprised over the course of the week by watching people's reactions and their sort of their imaginations interact with this new, this digital format and this and this challenge of teaching to people across 20 time zones. Um, And I think it, it and in itself, then it became an experiment in critical pedagogy, critical digital pedagogy. Can this even happen? Can this actually work? All these all these years, Jesse and I have been talking about this, and all these years, Digital Pedagogy Lab has been saying this can work. And this year was the time we had to we had to walk the talk. And 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 I, if and you I, zoom out,
2: yeah, and if you zoom out from um, th- this specific event, our education systems don't work for our most marginalized students. They don't work for the most marginalized teachers. So when you hit that point of this couldn't possibly work, I think that's a point of privilege. Um, That's a point where you have to actually look around you and say, who has been falling through the cracks of this system all along? And at the point where you start to go, huh, I don't know if I can make this work, you have to say, well, the onus is on me to help make this work and to draw people together and to draw myself together with students or with my colleagues to figure out how we overcome this because otherwise education will continue to not work for the people that it's never worked for.
3: Similarly, though, I want to I want to say, and I'm sorry, we're, we will let you guys ask other questions. Um, this, is, <laughs> this, is, this, is how, this is how we do. Um, but um, I, I want to say, too, that that saying saying that it can't work is is a, can be a, a position of privilege because maybe you're going to get on with your life and someone else can't can't get on with theirs. But it's also a position, it's also, it's also what happens to people when they are adjunct or they are, um, you know, they're facing certain kinds of, different kinds of challenges that, that people with privilege don't face. And, and this happens all the time when we're talking to teachers where um, someone will say, well, I, I can't make those kinds of modifications to my syllabus, I can't do ungrading because I'm an adjunct and my job is on the line and I don't know if I'm gonna get another, I don't know if I get another class next term or if, if I have any kind of stability. So in those moments, imagination is even more important for that person to say, okay, you can, you can go ahead and, and, and do that or you can try to be imaginative even about just one tiny aspect of, of, what, of how you teach or how you go about your work um, to, to try to relieve some of that pain that you're feeling, some of that anxiety that you're feeling. Try to try to make, bring some joy into what you do um, through, through that kind of imagination.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just uh, texted a colleague of mine um, who's also a, a senior faculty member and and was on sabbatical last year, so she's doing online for the first time coming off sabbatical. I texted her a quote from Sean that said, um, rely more on pedagogues and less on tech. And because, you know, we're looking at all this, you know, endless stream of technology and uh, things one can do online and uh, pandemic pedagogy groups and it, it all kind of just <laughs> are little explosions everywhere. And so how to find that joy um, and, and relieve the anxiety as you as you talk about. So I've just, I've been holding on to this book uh, as I rethink my classes for the fall. Um, so I, I want to ask, and, and Lucia and I had, had talked about this and we sent it in our notes to you. Uh, if you could draw your pedagogy. Uh, and this comes from uh, really two sources. One, Parker Palmer's metaphor for self as a, as a teacher in The Courage to Teach, and also Doris Summer from Cultural Agents at Harvard in her book, The Work of Art in the World. Um, so where she does drawings and uh, art galleries with clotheslines, you know, back in the face-to-face days. Um, so I, I, I have clothesline and clothespins in my office now because of Tars. But if you could draw your pedagogy with no words, but you'll have to use words to tell us, of course, uh, each of you is pedagogues, um, then uh, what would you draw? What would it look like? What would you want to show us and your, and your students and other faculty?
2: It's actually interesting, and I'll maybe, I'll continue to think about this as Sean is answering, but the first thing I thought, and I didn't think this when you sent the question, but I thought it as you were talking about it just now, is that I can't imagine drawing this picture by myself. It feels so important for this to be a picture that I draw together with students, but also that I draw together with colleagues, because I think of the act of teaching as so inherently collaborative. It's not something I can possibly do by myself. So the, the, the thing that I thought about is drawing human beings, connecting with the idea of, that we're talking about pedagogues, not tech. I think it's fascinating that right now, the, the, the visual metaphors that are popping into my head for how institutions are describing education. I'm seeing um, plexiglass. I am seeing Purell dispensers. And I am seeing video cameras being put into classrooms. And these are really dangerous visual metaphors. Um, because I, it's not to say that I don't, yes, we need Purell in order to disinfect and not spread the virus. But that the idea of putting 2,000 Purell stations on a campus rather than making the hard decision that you're maybe not going to open if 2000 Purell uh, dispensers is necessary. And so I think we need to be thinking about human beings and our human resources and investing in our human resources as opposed to in, in those things.
3: So when you asked that question in your email to me um, or to us, I, the, the first thing that I thought of was that if i was going to draw and i can't draw i stopped drawing in the fifth grade actually i said i'm going to write instead (laughs) of draw and that was ridiculous but um it the first thing i thought of was it would be an open book right i would draw an open book because i feel like there's there's not only um my, my my world is very textual anyway but but also um this idea of it being transparent and it being something that is being written all the time um and open to anybody to look at but today when I was looking at it, and I'm going to, and this is, so stick with me, I'm not even sure I can tell this story, but I'm going to try. Um, today, when I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what, my pedagogy most days feels a little bit like, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, the, um, the, the restoration of the Ecce Homo um, painting, which is a, a painting of Jesus that is very, very not restored well. Um, and and it, it's it 's sort of botched, it looks terrible, right um, and some days it feels like that. It feels like what I try to do just doesn 't work, and I always feel like i 'm just not and i'm just i 'm just running in circles and that and it just looks terrible from the outside but I was actually just now while Jesse was talking, I was looking it up online, and I ran into this 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 article about it and that apparently the Eche homo was was restored by an eighty two year old widow eighty two year old widow in Spain um, and when it first when people first saw it, it was oh, like everyone was mocking it and scorning it, and this was just terrible. This is just terrible. But actually, what happened was all these tourists started flocking to town. Um, so suddenly, everything, everyone was coming. And there's a there's a quote in this article I'm see, I'm seeing from the New York um, a quote from the New York Times article um, by an opera librettist who traveled there to see the painting, and he said, "It's a pilgrimage of sorts, driven the media into a phenomenon. God works in mysterious ways." your disaster could be my miracle. And I think the idea of your disaster could be my miracle is so central to what we do in a classroom and in critical pedagogy, because we are, looking at, we are looking at the worst possible situations. Critical pedagogy looks at the worst possible situations of oppression and tries to figure out how we make it better and how we make it into something that is actually full of power and agency. Um, and I think that think of it, thinking of it that way, we look at this, this sad, sad, sad painting um, and, and think, except that it can also be something really beautiful if we look at it the right way. Um, so I think that, I hope I told that story at all, but that, that's kind of, I was just, when I was looking at this and I thought, that, that's an amazing line. Someone else's disaster can be my miracle. And I think that's exactly, that's how I, that's how I teach.
4: I love actually the contrast there because we have Sean, you talking about this disaster becoming a miracle for others and right after Jesse talks about the disastrous images of our classrooms right now with the Purell and the plexiglass and the cameras and I thought of desks bolted to the floor so you can't move them. Um, So we'll see what comes of of this disaster. I, since we're on the topic of critical pedagogy, I wonder if y'all could tell us maybe with a story, how you came into your commitments to critical pedagogy.
3: I can start. Um, and it's it, in some ways it's appropriate that I start because it was Jesse um, that introduced me to critical pedagogy. Um, when I, so I met Jesse in grad school and uh, I had never taught in a classroom before in my whole life. And I was entering into a, into a, a master's in creative writing. Um, and when I started, I was, I was immediately given, because, because the creative writing program was underfunded and so it used graduate students to teach all its classes, um, the, um, I was immediately given classes to teach, right? My very first semester, I'd never taught before. I had no training, zero training. They didn't offer any training. Um, and so here I was just jumping into, into teaching. Fortunately, I had met Jesse and Jesse worked me through a lot of sort of pedagogical ideas and, and, and helped me revise the syllabus that I wasn't supposed to revise and, um, and really sort of get going on, on teaching. But what was really fascinating was, I think what cemented my, my uh, commitment to critical pedagogy was that the, the chair of my department and all of the faculty that I worked with the tenured faculty and stuff that I worked with kept telling me don't think about teaching don't spend time on teaching whatever you do don't worry about teaching you're here to do your writing you're here for yourself do your writing which isn't necessarily wrong I was there for myself to do my writing but I walked into a classroom with 18 students who needed a teacher and there was no way that I could just focus on my writing at that point. I had to be a good teacher. And so in a way it was the tension of them telling me, don't think about your teaching. And then actually working as a teacher that made me realize, okay, something needs to change here. Something needs to be really different about the way that we approach teaching. It can't just be something that I'm doing off of the syllabus and out of a textbook and the way that dozens of graduate students have done it that way before. Um, because clearly that came out of, a, out of a system of basically pedagogical neglect. Um, and so now I need to change that, and I need to to really commit myself to teaching. so I, I tell people that I got my my master's in creative writing, but I actually studied pedagogy.
2: Yeah, and I guess I would say that I um, there's a lot of different answers to this. one, i had I had a few mentors who really influenced the way that I thought about teaching and gave me folks that I could talk to about teaching. And so in some ways, I, And there wasn't nearly enough of that. I wanted to have a PhD in higher education pedagogy, but that wasn't really a thing to be found. I went to an institution where I did get quite a lot more than most people get as far as pedagogical training goes, but it still wasn't enough. So I turned to a lot of this work in critical pedagogy as a way to, in a sense, kind of build the education for myself that I wasn't finding and But the one thing I would say also is that I don't necessarily know that I have yet figured out the answer to your question because I'm constantly returning to this work uh, and never able to feel like I've quite gotten a handle on it. For example, I can also point to my work with Sarah Goldrick-Rab over the last five or seven years as something that has made me Refigure out what critical pedagogy is and what the value of it is. So Sarah Goldrick-Rab works on food and housing insecurity and she does policy work, whereas my work is always focused on pedagogy. And she and I often collaborate across that divide thinking about how policy and pedagogy intersect with one another. And when I started seeing some of her research and I started to see some of the data around the prevalence of food and housing insecurity, it made me just, return to critical pedagogy again and say, okay, so now I know this about the students that I work with. How does that completely change the way that I teach? And so I think that really critical pedagogy is constantly coming upon the problem anew and upon new problems. uh, And then having to work through them again and again and again, because pedagogy ultimately isn't something you learn. It's, It's a, it's praxis. So it's, philosophy and practice and constantly recursive, moving back and forth through that as your practice re-informs your philosophy and as your philosophy re-informs your practice.
1: That ends part one of our interview with Sean Michael Morris and Jesse Stommel of Digital Pedagogy Lab. They are the authors of An Urgency of Teachers, the work of critical digital pedagogy. In part two, Sean and Jesse are going to talk to Lucia and me about ungrading and other student centered practices for online teaching.